It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to the mini break. Your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, September 11th. We have so many things to discuss coming out of championship weekend at the 2023 U.S. Open, so much so that we've decided to divide our U.S. Open recap into two different episodes. Here on part number one, you're going to hear me nerd out. I have my notes compiled. I want to offer my thoughts on all the tennis we saw unfold from the semifinals onward. I thought we were treated to some phenomenal action, whether it was that Scorigami thriller, Love 6 7 6 7 6 victory for Arena Sabalenka over Madison Keys. That set the tone for just about everything we saw the rest of the way, whether it was Medvedev's perfection against Alcaraz in the semifinal, Djokovic bringing in the serve and volley against Medvedev in the final, Coco Goff's persistence, her ability to change direction with such success against Arena Sabalenka to capture her first slam title. Again, part number one here, we're nerding out. We're focusing on the tennis, what stood out to me, what the numbers now say about each of these competitors, what we should be watching for from all the players that competed in championship weekend moving forward. Part two of our U.S. Open recap is going to take a 30,000-foot view of where things now stand in the tennis world. And of course, to do that, I feel it's always wise to bring in our deal friend, dear friend, excuse me, Tennis.com editorial producer David Kane. So he will join me on part two of our recap on Tuesday to discuss the biggest storylines coming out of the event and where we as a tennis world move to from here. But again, here on part one, playing a little cleanup, I want to talk about the final six singles matches we saw throughout the course of the weekend. Obviously, we'll start with the finals. Coco Goff knocking out Arena Sabalenka in three. Novak Djokovic, a straight set, not comprehensive, but certainly a straight set definitive victory over Daniil Medvedev for to extend his record, excuse me, 24th slam singles title. I want to talk Medvedev semifinals because that was jaw-droppingly excellent. Sabalenka winning 12 straight points from a set and a breakdown to extend her vict- uh, her match, ultimately take things 7-6 in the third over Madison Keys. That I, I, I want you all to know I was watching the Lions game on Thursday night with some buddies after that game ended. I was, of course, monitoring Sabalenka Keys the whole time, but I convinced them, hey, let's switch over to the tennis. I happened to be with my former college roommate, Blake Ahadi, who was part of my Michigan club tennis teams. The reason I bring that up is to say he understands the game. He's on the level. If it's a binary system, he's a one, not a zero when it comes to tennis. And to just watch him react to Arena Sabalenka's game, someone who doesn't live in the tennis bubble the way all of we, uh, the way all of us here, not I guess the way I who 
presents this show does the way that, of course, uh, all of you listeners who I like to think live in the tennis bubble, if you're listening to a daily show, do as well. It was fascinating. Again, what I want to do on this show, I'll say this for the last time, is just nerd out. I want to talk tennis. I want to talk the beauty of our sport, the counterpunching tactically we saw all weekend long. Let's nerd out. Let's have some fun. Of course, part two tomorrow, we'll focus on the storylines. We'll clean up anything that we missed today with our dear friend David Kane. Of course, the reason we're able to do all of that day in, day out is because of the support we get from all of you listeners. Immensely grateful so many of you do choose us here at Crack Rackets to keep you up to date on everything that happens in the tennis world. And Yes, slam season might be over for 2023, but folks, we still got two plus months of tennis left remaining. We're headed back to Asia on the ATP Tour. There are a lot of WTA finals controversy related things. Where is that event going to be played? Why has it continued to switch locations? We haven't talked about that yet here on this show. That's something we're absolutely going to get into over the next weekend. I mean, for goodness sake, we have action in San Diego happening right now. There are a lot of really good players on the grounds there. Maria Sakari, obviously one of them coming off of her disappointing first round result at the U.S. Open and her disappointing results at the Slams more broadly. So it's a massive opportunity for her and countless other players in the draw again. There's a lot of tennis left on the calendar. We will have updates on all of that for you, ATP level, WTA level, Challenger ITF level, over the next few months here at Cracked Rackets. Of course, we are so excited this weekend to have more live tennis for all of you on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. We're headed to Oklahoma, Oklahoma Tennis Foundation charity event. It is a round-robin team event. It's going to be awesome. A lot of great players in the draw. Again, we'll have more preview material on that event moving forward throughout this week. We'll have coverage starting Friday, Saturday on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel as well. So be on the lookout for that. A shout out to all of you listeners who tune in day in, day out. Again, I know you're looking for final thoughts on all things New York. We want to provide those to you via a two-part mini-break podcast. So that's the agenda for today. Of course, a shout-out, as always, to the support we get from our friends at Tennis uh, Tennis Channel and Tennis Point as well. Helps us pay the bills around here at Cracked Rackets. And again, the way you can all support them, go to TennisPoint.com for all the latest and greatest equipment in the tennis world at the best prices. Use our promo code CR15 to let them know we sent you tennis Point. The promo code is CR15. All right, let's talk championship weekend at the 2023 U.S. Open. And I guess just for the sake of order, for the sake of organization, we'll go chronologically. Let's start on the women's side of things. We'll start in reverse order, I suppose, with the women's final. I mean, it was the summer of Coco. If you've been watching the tour closely since we switched from the grass courts in London to the North American hard courts in D.C., the storyline on the WTA tour has been this ascension of Coco Gauff to that final step, that unequivocal tier one category. Obviously, for her to beat now world number one Rina Sabalenka from a set down in a three-set final to pull away as definitively as she did 6-2 in the third to withstand uh, withstands the wrong word because regardless of the scene regardless of what you think of protesting at the US Open specifically the uh oper- or the 
opportunity cost is the wrong word, but the effect of that sort of protest, it obviously caused a 45-minute delay in that Goff-Muhova match in the semis, and it didn't matter to Coco Goff, who comes out after the match and says, no, I understand why they're protesting. I appreciate them. Confidence of the convictions, etc. Didn't phase her on the court, a 4-5 and five victory in what was an incredibly physical match over a more experienced, dare I say, player at the slams. I mean, beyond all of that from Coco Goff this weekend, you look big picture at what she's accomplished now this summer. Coco Goff's 18-1 and throughout this North American—18-1, excuse me, throughout this North American hardcourt stretch. She wins D.C., wins over Bencic, Samsonova, Sakari. She wins Cincinnati, wins over Sviantek, Mukova in championship weekend, now gets wins over Mertens, Wozniacki, Ostapenko, Mukova again, and Sabalenka. I mean, the only name she's missing a victory over on this list is Jessica Pagula. That's the only top-tier contender, top player right now in the world, it feels like. Her, maybe Vondrusova, that she didn't face during this North American hardcore stretch, or didn't beat at least. I know she lost 7-5 in the third to Pagula. This was no fluke run. You know, you can't write this off and say, oh, she didn't face any seeds, or oh, she faced all these players ranked outside the top 40. With And with respect to Coco Goff's 2022 French Open final run, you know, again, there's no doubt that draw was a little bit easier. You go back to how she managed to reach that final wins, you know, over Kanepi, Van Utvenk, Marino, Mertens, Stevens, Trevisan. You know, Stevens obviously is a former French Open finalist. I know Mertens has been a top 35 player forever. Say what you will about Trevisan on hard courts, on clay courts. She's certainly in that top 25 conversation. But, you know, again... This draw was not that draw. This draw had an informed Caroline Wozniacki, a Yelena Ostapenko coming off of a win over world number one Iga Sviantek, a Karolina Muhova who had made a French Open final earlier this season and was a top 10 seed. And then, of course, Goff takes out Arena Sabalenka, who was the rising, ascending world number one who had yet to drop a set coming into championship weekend, obviously dropped the set against Keys, but rebounded so strongly and just... Looked like a world beater, was just hitting the cover off of the ball. Felt like she was the perfect elixir, the perfect antidote to cool off this Coco Goff run. And when she took that first set in a dominant 6-2 fashion, you felt like, yep, all due respect to Coco Goff, she's had an incredible run, but this is Sabalenka's crowning movement. This is her time to be celebrated as the world number one, rising with a slam title to her name, uh, with another slam title, excuse me, to her name in a two-slam season to propel her to that world number one. And Coco Goff said, nope, that's not happening. This is my time right now. And, I mean, you just look at the tennis we saw from Coco Goff, not just in the final, but in the semifinals and against Wozniacki, certainly against Ostapenko. Though I, I throw that Ostapenko match out because all due respect to Yelena, she just was not good in that match. It's the physicality she brings first and foremost, match in, match out. It's the fact that she is always going to track down those three extra balls per rally, that she's always going to slide into that backhand when she's stretched on that ad side and generate just enough depth, just enough pace from that corner to make you uncomfortable. It's the fact that Coco Goff's first step moving forward towards the net 
has just become elite. And her ability to beat you to that spot, I know she goes only 7 of 10 against Sabalenka in the semifinals at the net, but it was that threat of her moving forward, that ability for her to track down that ball and really change direction with that forehand line. That forehand line has been a revelation during this 18-1 North American hardcourt summer. And look, especially in that first set, when Sabalenka, who did not serve well, in this match, made just 52% of her first serves. But when she made 56% of those first serves in set number one, she went 11 of 15 on first serve points. Uh, it just felt like she was teeing off on that first serve. She was attacking it with her pace. She was beating Goff to the spot. You know, Goff, uh, it just felt like couldn't get, it couldn't make Sabalenka uncomfortable at all with her own serve. And Sabalenka, I think, goes three of six on breaks points, so breaks Goff in three of four service games in that opening set. And, you know, Goff goes 12 of 28 on points on serve in that opening set. It looked exactly like we thought it would. Sabalenka playing with undisputed elite Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club power, hitting the cover off the ball, you know, taking away, you know, Coco Goff made 71% of her first serves in that opening set. It didn't matter. It's just she was not making Sabalenka uncomfortable. That ball would kick up right into the strike zone of Sabalenka, and whether it was forehand wing, whether it was backhand wing, much like we saw all tournament long from Arena, she saw the ball like a grapefruit. She was cleaning Goff's clock. She was getting that ball deep into the forehand wing of Coco Goff. Goff was leaving that ball a little bit short. Uh, Again, Sabalenka was never uncomfortable on the return of serve. Then we got to set number two. And obviously the most fascinating thing that's shifted in sets one and two. Set number one, Coco Goff makes 71% of her first serves. Set number two, Coco Goff makes just 50% of her first serves. And yet, Goff 13 of 16 on first serve points in set number two. Nine of 16 on second serve points in set number two saved all three break points she faced in set number two and converted the one break point chance she got in set number two. Now, it was a sloppier set for Arena Sabalenka. You could tell she, uh, I don't know why I said Arena, was a sloppier set for Arena Sabalenka. You know, again, yes, the serve was coming in a little bit faster, but she started hitting out a little bit too much on those return of serves. She just wasn't giving herself a shot to put the ball in play. It felt like she felt the pressure to end those rallies at the earliest possible moment against Coco Goff because Coco Goff was punishing anything that was left short. Coco Goff was taking any possible opportunity to change directions and just uh, change directions and just force Sabalenka to hit on the run, force Sabalenka to not have her feet set because no one was more dangerous with her feet set in New York than Arena Sabalenka from start to finish in this event. And yet Coco Goff took that away. Again, whether it was attacking in particular with her forehand line to get Sabalenka pressed on that backhand wing, then attacking with pace, with angle into that Sabalenka forehand wing, which I think that's where the majority of the errors came for Sabalenka. Six of 16 unforced errors in set number two. I counted nine of those 16 unforced errors came from her on-the-run forehand, which again is a little bit bigger, a few more moving parts. That's the one she'll yank wide cross-court when she mishits or push a little bit long at times when she tries to redirect down the line. It was a credit to Goff, who can just continue to do a little bit of everything. I've mentioned the overwhelming physicality. No one moves 
better than Coco Golf. I'm not saying Ega is not an e- equal to those of you uh, who are the Ega fans who I know love to listen to this show because, again, I absolutely, you know, again, I know there was a tweet that went around. Shout out to our guy, Jose Morgado, friend of the program. I'm very, very fond of Jose, the work he continues to do. He said, you know, the once in a generation talent, Coco Golf, or the generational face of the game. And, you know, obviously a lot of Ega fans took offense to that because Ega 22 already four slams. She's been world number one for 74 plus weeks. I, I just, I don't know why I feel the need to address. I guess this speaks to the veracity. I don't know if that's the right word. It speaks to the, uh, I don't know, the Iga fans are always defending Iga. Maybe I just happen to see a lot of them on my feed, but I think you're taking offense, Iga fans. I say that lovingly in in a place where you just don't need to. And especially here on this show, you know, we can we can respect two accomplishments at once. We're well aware of what Iga has, to, has already accomplished. You guys know I say it all the time. She has yet to be eliminated from the greatest of all time discussion. We can all acknowledge, though, what a transcendent, special moment this is for American tennis, what it means to have another young African-American face of the game here in our sport to just grapple around, to be excited about, and even beyond that, to have someone who's just the kindest, sweetest, most honest, like genuine human in the world in Coco Goff to just be out there on stage and you know, the way she answers questions so directly, so honestly, the way she involves herself, engages in social media. And again, just because she does this, I'm not saying others don't do this as well, Ega fans. I'm saying Coco Goff is as exceptional at those skills as anyone we have in our game. And, you know, she since she was 14 years old, she's been an exceptional uh, interview. She's always uh, been able to provide proper perspective on what she's managed to accomplish so far in her career. And yet, why, why uh, in spite of all of those accomplishments, her biggest goals remain in front of her. And again, this is something we'll talk about more with David. I suppose this is a non-tennis aspect of things, but the tennis has caught up to all the off-court charisma we've always known Coco Goff has possessed. And again, the forehand was anything but a liability in this match. You look for Coco Goff as the match progressed. She ultimately won, I think, uh, five of nine on break point chances. She ultimately wins 59% of her second serve return points. She ultimately, you know, fights off six of the 10 break points that she faces, just 19 unforced errors to 46 from Sabalenka. And yes, I'm well aware 16 of those 46 and 32 of the 46 overall came in sets uh, two and three, which you could see the legs sort of be sapped from Sabalenka. You could tell she felt the need to end points earlier because Coco Goff continued to track down that first strike, would continue to get Sabalenka stretched in the outer thirds in particular. It was a masterful game plan from Coco Goff, not just, by the way, in the, in the finals, but I thought she played a really smart match in the semifinals as well. And you know, that was a match that was a little bit more physical. Karolina Mukova was a little bit more willing to tolerate those 10, 15, 20 ball rallies. And yet, in that instance, it was Goff who hit the more dynamic ball from the baseline that was able to penetrate the court more successfully, create easier opportunities for her to move forward and finish points, which again is probably the thing she gets the least amount of credit in doing of that ability to... I mean... What's so amazing, not only is she now a slam champion, but she's been top five in the world in singles and doubles now for about 18 months, and she's not even 20 years old. 
She's top 10 in the world in both hold and break percentage. She'd been flirting with that number all season long. Now it's definitive. And now when I say there are two players in the world that are top 10 in hold and break percentage, those two players are Iga and Coco. With this 18-1 run that Coco Goff has been on, doesn't that grouping just make more sense moving forward? And, you know, again, the best part of it all She's 19 years old. You know, first teenage champion uh, at the U- uh, first American teenage champion at the U.S. Open since Serena freaking Williams, and just, I mean, again, what a run! It's it's how you know a lot of people have talked about the relationship with Brad Gilbert, what him providing that coaching perspective has done. It's such an easy thing to turn to, given since he's joined the team, she is 18 and one, and have gone on this run, but. Again, Coco was this good to start the year as well, even if she didn't have the definitive slam run. She's now 45 and 13 overall, but you know, she was 27 and 12 at one point in the season as well prior to this hardcore stretch. She has been a perennial top eight sort of player. And obviously now with this run, we'll unequivocally make the year-end finals for a second consecutive season. And, you know, to do that twice consecutively before even turning 20 years old. I'm sure that puts her in elite company. The tennis is outstanding. The physicality is remarkable. And again, more than anything else, she just has a personality that all of us gravitate towards. The smile, the charisma, the videos going around of her dancing as a young, you know, seven, eight, nine-year-old being taken to this event, watching Serena's, watching Venus's, who she's talking so uh, openly about of how they have inspired her. You know, she said the same thing about Caroline Wozniacki, who she discussed was she was thrilled to have the opportunity to play. She beats her as well. And again, to beat a player in a Muhova who had made a final at a slam earlier this season. To beat someone in Sabalenka, who became the first player since 2016, Serena, to reach the semifinals at all four slams in the same season. She earned this one. Put the crown on her head. The numbers say it. The eye test say it. By the way, she's up to number three in the rankings, a new career high. But maybe more importantly, she's up to number two in Tennis Abstract's ELO ratings, which is a new career high from her from a ELO perspective. And that speaks to who she's beaten, how she's beaten them, the run she has been on. You know, with Rabat, I, I I don't want to say Rabat. I just think, and this is something we'll talk about with DK. I was going to say there's a clear cut. I, I want to be careful with my words here. I have never in the maybe five and a half, now six years we've been doing this podcast. It's It actually has now been six years. Happy anniversary to us this past July. I don't think we've ever had this sort of clarity in terms of who are the top five, who are the top 10 women right now on tour. We're very certain of who that, uh, at least I'm very certain of who those people are coming out of 2023 and heading into 2024. And look, that's a conversation, again, I want to have with David Kane, but there's just no denying it anymore. You beat Sabalenka, you beat Muhova, you beat an Ostapenko who just beat Iga, you beat an inform Wozniacki, you beat an inform Mertens, you beat a fellow youngster in your generational in Mira Andriva, and you overcome a first set deficit where you were not playing well in round number one. There's just no question marks coming out of this slam. There's no way to you know put any sort of asterisk next to this at all as you know the quote-unquote haters, as Coco Goff referred to in her post-match celebration speech, love to do. You can't do that after this run from Goff. And, you know, again, we'll get into more of the stats with DK, what she's accomplished historically, what sort of perspective we need to have on where she goes from here. But she'd be the best player in the world in Arena Sabalenka, 
in the semifinals. And yes, I know that is a controversial statement to Iga fans. I'm not saying big picture Sabalenka is better than Iga moving forward. I am saying in 2023, as of right now, I do think Arena Sabalenka is your player of the year. I think the context of what she has done this season relative to her past performances, her rise from middle of tier two, bottom of uh, top of tier two, bottom of tier one to unequivocally tier one. You know, again, that's the biggest jump we've seen from any player this season. And I do just want to mention the way she won that semifinal match. 6-0, down, 12 straight points to take a 6-5 lead. She takes, plays a perfect breaker, 7-1. You know, again, then it's an absolute war in the third set with 28-year-old Maddie Keys. And by the way, I've said it all year long. Maybe now people will see it after she makes the semifinals here in New York, after she was so closely on the precipice of making that U.S. Open final. You know, She's back up to 11 in the world, so the rankings pretty much say this. She's top 10 in the points race. Madison Keys is one of the 10 best players in the world this year, and you look at her record now overall on the season, 33-12. and 12, Certainly that 73% win percentage speaks to that fact. But Sabalenka, I, 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 I'll bring back to what I mentioned in the intro. Sabalenka took Blake Ahadi, my roommate's breath away. Like, I, I, I've never, you know, again, Blake will watch Djokovic. Uh, there are, in certain spotlights, highlights, Blake kind of looks like Djokovic, which is, uh, some of you may be thinking, send us a photo of that man. That sounds like a handsome man. And to his credit, Blake Ahadi, very handsome man. I like to think all of our roommates were handsome. We were a fun crew to go out with back in the day. Anyways, I mean, Blake couldn't stop talking about Arena Sabalenka. He goes, dude, does she hit winners like this all the time? And then he'd watch Madison Keys blitz first serves, blitz first forehands, change direction, you know, with exceptional pace down the line after dropping that second set. And just again, for her to be able to steady the ship there and force a breaker in the third. I've never seen someone so quickly make the pivot from me like, dude, respectfully, and I'm not saying this to diminish him, but he, he's not the biggest fan of women's tennis. It just hasn't been for him perennially in his sports viewing lifetime. And when I say I've never seen someone pivot so quickly to be like, dude, I'm, I'm in on the final. Like, I'm all in on watching Sabalenka. And I know there was the Dave Portnoy of it all, the Barstool founder who is now in on Sabalenka. Some people really enjoyed putting on spot, him putting a spotlight on tennis. Other people, given some of his history, maybe a little bit less enthusiastic. Again, that's a discussion we'll have with David Kane tomorrow. But I'm telling you, just she's a transcendent tennis, uh, tennis talent, and she – Drops your draw on the floor. The same way I watch Iga slide into backhands and, you know, maneuver her way around the court and just overwhelm people with her athleticism. And that puts my jaw on the floor. Sabalenka does that same thing, but rather than, you know, with her speed, it's with her pace. It's with her power. Again, from 5-3 down, 12 straight points. I think 10 of them were just blitzed winners down the line. She's cranking 125 mile per hour serves. And you know, again, Blake and I grind out there on court. And I have to say, Blake is very, very fast. You know, again, one of the quicker players, great counter puncher, a little tougher for him to generate his own pace. That's a discussion for another time. But he goes, you know, again, he's like, dude, she beats me 0-0 in 20 minutes. Like, it's not even a discussion. Oh, my. I just can't imagine... 
I can't express this enough what a joy it was for me to see someone who's not trapped in the tennis bubble just thoroughly get to experience all things Sabalenka and be mesmerized by it because she is that sort of player who just can go on those streaks. And again, Madison Keys was right there with her the whole time. Once again, showing the ceiling Keys is capable of playing at. And at 28 years old, you feel like there's still a long runway of possible success for Maddie, who has now made hard court semifinal, uh, semifinals at hard court majors in back-to-back season, continues to knock on the door. And we're actually going to talk with DK tomorrow, who are the players uh, who are now in that Andy Murray, Caroline Wozniacki spot of most accomplished without a slam and who's next in line that we'd like to see break through. That's a tomorrow conversation. But, you know, as physical as that golf Muhova semifinal was, the power tennis on display in Sabalenka Keys. That was my favorite match I might have watched all. I mean, 06-7676. It's funny that happened twice in the same event. Shout out Martina Trevisan, who won the other instance of it. But that, to me, was the match of the tournament. And that's not, by the way, I did an opening 16 minutes on Coco Goff. Again, she is unequivocally a rising superstar in the sport. You saw all the athletes, all the celebrities on hand, all the congratulations she got. You know, Michelle and Barack Obama, you know, Mr. President and Madam First Lady are tweeting out to you saying, nice job, nice job winning a tennis tournament. You know you've done something special. Anyways. I thought it was a really fun championship weekend on the women's side. The drama of those semifinal matches, you know, again, to have the drama, I suppose, of a 45-minute pause due to protesting to see golf pull through and then say, okay, is it going to be an All-American final with Madison Keys up a set and a break, striking the ball lights out for like the sixth consecutive match and seems to have finally cracked the Sabalenka code. And then, again, 12 points, you know, eight winners and 12 points later, Sabalenka's forcing a third and just... Again, it was really fun for me to get to watch that match with someone not trapped in the tennis bubble the exact same way. It was really fun to watch that men's final unfold. And I happen to be, you know, I'm home this weekend in Michigan. Shout out to my cousin, Julia, youngest cousin on my mom's side of the family. It was her bat mitzvah, final bat mitzvah of the Merkel clan. And let me say, when the Merkel clan rolls 15 deep, my mom, her two sisters, all three husbands, three kids, and all the families, I should say we roll 16 deep because shout out to the matriarch, my grandma, Nana. Um, it's, it's a good looking crew. It's a fun crew to hang out with. I certainly enjoyed my time hanging out with my family as I always do this past weekend. But the, the additional privilege of beyond just hanging out with them, enjoying about mitzvah, was then on Sunday, we got to watch the men's final together. And one of my favorite experiences of the men's final was watching my younger brother, Nicholas, flip-flop maybe every two points between, God, Daniil Medvedev is the worst player I've ever seen to, oh my God, how does Daniil Medvedev continue to make backhands like that? How is he making Novak Djokovic, arguably the greatest athlete, not just in tennis, but as we see the debate now stirring up, maybe the greatest male athlete we have in sport period right now. You know, Daniil Medvedev pushed him to the brink. It was Novak Djokovic who looked like he was about to pass out. Novak Djokovic who looked like he was going to have nothing left in the tank. And look, the shot of the match, the turning point of the match, the the moment where the window went from wide open to creaking shut for Daniil Medvedev, 5-4, 30-40, backhand pass, has the opportunity. The entire line is wide open to him. 
Medvedev decides to keep it low, go cross-court. Djokovic guesses perfectly. He's at the net. He knifes the volley away, fights off the set point, holds for five all, pulls away in the breaker there. And ultimately, again, it is Novak Djokovic who earns a straight set victory for slam number 24. Djokovic ultimately a 6-3-7-6-6-3 win. I mean, look, there were four total breaks of serve in this match. It was a straight set match, and yet it went three hours, 17 minutes. It was an hour, 44-minute second set that was just a war of attrition. And again, it wasn't just Nick Gruskin who turned on Daniil Medvedev. Let me tell you, the Roger Ebert of tennis media critics, my lovely mother, Laura, uh, who I just call mom, um, but for all of you, I guess you all can get her first name, my lovely mother. Actually, she's Dr. Gruskin to all of you tennis fans. My mom was like, hey, Daniil, like, do you want to move forward? I, it was just incredible. She's like, is he going to hit a volley ever, Alex? And, you know, again, you have Nick in the background being like, yeah, he's trash. And then on the very next point being like, wait, I completely rescind that. I'm all in on Daniil Medvedev. And again, my younger brother is just having fun in and out. Obviously, Daniil Medvedev's not trash, but we're having a high-level tennis conversation. How does this guy who seemingly couldn't generate any sort of pace from the background, find himself in a, uh, from the background, excuse me, from the baseline, find himself in a U.S. Open final. Well, it's because he's able to play an hour, 44 minute set and match the physicality of, again, a man who has to be the greatest athlete of my generation in Novak Djokovic, a man who has now made, who played 72 total slams, made 36 slam finals in 72 slam appearances. Let me say that again. 36 slam finals in 72 major appearances. Every other slam he's played in his career, he's made the final of. He's won one out of every three slams he's played now. Here's some quick math for you. 24 times 2 is 48 times 3 is 72. He's played 72 total slams. He has 24 slam titles, the most singles titles of anyone in the open era. He passes Margaret Court now, passes Serena as well, or maybe equals Margaret Court and passes Serena. He brings out the 24 shirt with the honor Kobe with the background after winning you know, again, the 7-5 tie-break score, they trade a couple of mini-breaks early, but it is just Novak Djokovic refusing to miss a backhand, refusing to do anything but hit the first serve, do side out wide, serve and volley behind that ball. All he has to do is make the first volley to the open court. He was 15 out of his first 16 successful serve and volley attempts after serving and volleying just seven times total in the previous six matches, or maybe it was six of eight total in the previous six matches. He goes 15 out of his first 16 successful serve and volley attempts to take that two sets to love lead. And look, tactically, that's all there is to say. Novak Djokovic said, here's what I'm doing. I'm serving out wide on the deuce side. I'm picking on your forehand. If you're going to beat 12 feet behind the baseline hitting that return, I bet you can't beat me. And guess what? Novak was right. Medvedev must have missed that forehand return or hit it down the center for Novak to put away an easy first volley. 15 out of 16 times because that's how successful Djokovic was serving and volleying behind that tactic. And look again, why does that work? against Daniil. Oh, why does that work for Djokovic and not others? Because A, if you miss the spot on the return of serve and Medvedev has an even cleaner look on that forehand, he will be able to pass you. B, if you hit it to that backhand wing, he's going to keep it deep. He's going to keep it short. He will get looks at second passes. If you pop up the first volley, 
without hitting, you, know, you don't hit it definitively, and you give him some opportunities to extend rallies. And once the rally's extended, you better have your lungs with you, because if you don't, Medvedev's going to bust them. And again, there were moments when he had that set point in set number two. I told my brothers, this is the match right here. Medvedev takes this set. We have ourselves a match. If Daniil Medvedev loses this second, by the way, astute analysis, goes down two sets to love to Djokovic, this one's over. He just wasn't able to pull out that second set breaker. He had his opportunities. But again, there was only one person. The the only way a point would end is if, you know, again, Djokovic made an unforced error or Djokovic put away a forehand volley at the net because Daniil Medvedev was in backboard mode. And I know Medvedev ultimately finishes with more unforced errors than Djokovic, 39 to 35. I think part of that was a byproduct of, again, set number three. He did try to manufacture a little bit more pace behind that forehand wing in particular. Set number two was just such a long match. There were so many 40-shot rallies that eventually someone had to miss. You get Medvedev gets broken in his opening service game of the first set. He gets uh, broken early in the third, gets that break back, but then is broken right away by Djokovic once again for 4-2. The match was the second set. The match was the hour, 44 minutes we played there, and... It was just, you know, again, it w- it was absolutely delightful. Um, it really was that to, to see that that display of physicality out there. And it was so funny, Medvedev after the match going, "Why are you still here, Novak? Like, don't you have better things to do at this point of your career?" Which was very funny, and it just speaks to the inevitability that you feel that is Novak Djokovic. Because again, Medvedev wasn't that far off from his level against Alcaraz in the semifinal, and oh. I mean, for anyone wondering, are we, have we passed peak Medvedev? The answer is no. We're in the midst of peak prime Medvedev to see the six foot six Russian. And that was the other thing. My mom and Nick, who were vacillating between why won't he move forward to, oh my God, this guy's six six. He doesn't have an ounce of fat on him, and he tracks down every ball thrown at you. How does he make that happen? I also happened to see my old coach, Joe Brennan, who used to always stress the 100 ball drill, make them beat you first and foremost, prove that you are not going to give this match away. Joe Brennan loves Daniil Medvedev more than anyone else out there because he just epitomizes that never-say-die attitude and make them rip you off the court. But, you know, again, Alcaraz wasn't able to do it. Alcaraz, we've said this before, a little too stubborn in playing just the one speed, the serve, the first forehand that just weren't there in set number two and four. And, you know, again, the physicality. Medvedev didn't make it unforced error in set number one, and he has that unique ability to be a brick wall to track down every ball you throw at him. And then every so often, he'll throw in that 125-mile-per-hour, 135-mile-per-hour massive first serve that earns him free points. And yet he just could not get a ball by 36-year-old Novak Djokovic, who was willing. Yes, he looked a little bit more hurt at the end of those 40-shot rallies at times than Medvedev did, but he was right back on the line ready to play the next one. He never went away. He continued to press forward, continued to be the aggressor again. 37 of 44 at the net in this match was Novak. He won 48 of 59 first serve points against a guy who is the number one returner on hard courts this season. Now, again, you look for Medvedev. 
made 65% of his first serves and won 71% of his first serves. That first serve was the biggest weapon he had on the court and was the reason this match remains so close is because every so often he could just slap a first serve that there was nothing Djokovic could do off of. But Medvedev won just 38% of his second serve points. Again, Novak's ability to change direction. Backhand cross, backhand cross, backhand line, forehand cross, forehand line, move in behind that ball. It was the the rubric of the same rally patterns in just about every point, and yet Novak's ability to redirect and redirect with some chutzpah behind the ball. You know, that's why he won the the final. Obviously, the semifinal. A shout-out to Ben Shelton for making that semifinal. I know I haven't talked about hang-up-the-phone-gate, the celebration. Djokovic mocking Ben's celebration after he won that semifinal match. I tweeted this out at the time. It's the ultimate form of flattery. It just shows that what Ben was doing was getting in Novak's head. And again, I love Ben's energy, the charisma, the passion he plays with on every point that he wears that on his sleeve. It raises the stakes for everyone involved in the match, raises the stakes for the crowd who immediately become engaged, raises the stakes for Ben, who's obviously put himself on the line, and raises the stakes for his opponent, who says, you're going to let this guy be this energetic, be this boisterous, and beat you off the court? No, no, no. I'm going to win, and then I'm going to send a message to you. Hey, I heard what you were doing, and it didn't phase me. That's just athletics. That's competitors. You talk shit, you better be ready to back it up. And again, to Ben's credit, I thought, you know, first of all, he made the semifinals uh, at the freaking U.S. Open at 20 years old. That's backing up your talk. But second of all, like, spit your game. Like, do what you got to do. It's a tennis match. You're there to win. You're not there to make friends. You are there to do whatever you can to give yourself a competitive advantage to pull through. And it's unequivocal that part of Ben's strength is the energy, the relentlessness he brings, that ability to engage the crowd, get them on his side. Obviously, that is going to frustrate the greatest champion we have in our game in Novak Djokovic. And he is, more than anything, he's earned the right to respond uh, to that as well. I mean, again, I have no problem with it. That's just sport. That's competition. That's what makes the game great. And people who say that's not classy from Djokovic, you're just wrong. That's just competition. That's how athletes go at one another. For those of you who say Ben needs to tone things down, you're completely wrong. Tennis needs that dose of passion, that dose of energy, that dose of enthusiasm more frequently in every match that is played around the globe. I think both were in the right. I have no issues with how either guy celebrating. You heard Ben in the post-match when he was asked about it. He said, you know, mockery is actually the most sincere form of flattery. He's absolutely right. You got in his head, Ben. Like, even though he wasn't able to pull off the match, it's a win for Ben Sheldon. Now, again, the biggest win belongs to Novak. I'll say the stats again. One out of every three slams he's played, he won. One out of every, every other slam he played, he's made the final of. I saw him in the post-match press conference say, if I wasn't Serbian, I might be considered already the greatest male athlete of all time. I'm not, I'm not going to speak to the legitimacy of that argument. I'll say this. I think Brady made 10 Super Bowls. LeBron's made 10 or 11 finals. Jordan made the six finals, but 6-0, and obviously. For me, the greatest single sport athlete I've ever seen was Phelps at Beijing 2008. You were getting up for every swim. You were Everyone was just dialed in. How's he performing? Obviously, Serena, her decades of dominance, she belongs on that list in my lifetime as well. Tiger Woods, what he's been able to accomplish. Novak has to be on, if not at the top of that list. Because again, every other major for 17 years, 
he has made at the final of. He's won every third that he's played. He's 36 years old, doesn't appear to be slowing down. Out physicals a 27-year-old in their prime in this final. 23-1 and one at the majors this year. Third time in his career he's made all four major finals. His one loss, a five-set thriller to Alcaraz and Wimbledon. What are we doing here, folks? I mean, again, the greatest, the most accomplished men's tennis player is not an argument anymore. It's just not. And we'll have this discussion with David tomorrow, but it's just not. Novak Djokovic has accomplished more in men's tennis than any other player, period. Now, I'm not willing to say he's accomplished more than any other tennis player, period, because I do think Serena's doubles achievements get left out of the conversation too frequently. And it's just the totality of things Serena has done. It's a real argument between her and Novak. But that's the argument now. It's Serena versus Novak. It's not Rafa versus Novak. It's not Roger versus Novak in terms of total accomplishments. It's Serena versus Novak. That's the conversation. Those are my two goats. Those are my two faces on Mount Rushmore, and I'd have Federer, Nadal flanking them on the two sides, but they're the center of attention because, again, Novak out physicals a 27-year-old in his prime after that 27-year-old put on a display the likes of which we have not seen in quite some time to beat Alcaraz in four. And again, I have no worries about Alcaraz. Semifinals French, wins Wimbledon. Semifinals US, he's probably going to end the year world number one, even though Djokovic has three slam titles, given Djokovic hasn't really played much of the rest of the season. (sighs) I mean, look, I hope I tennised enough for you. On today's show. Again, we're going to do part two tomorrow. We'll recap some of the storylines. If you guys have any lingering questions, feel free to tweet us at Crack Rackets at AL Gruskin. But I mean, again, what an exciting weekend of play. And by the way, I'm aware of Rutliff and Dabrowski winning the doubles title. I'm aware Rajiv Ram, Joe Salisbury make it five straight majors, uh, um, five straight men's doubles major titles for a player or two with college ties. We're going to talk all about that on the Deciding Point Summer Edition shows on the GSP. Again, we'll talk biggest storylines with DK tomorrow, rehash some of the things in the finals as well, some you know, inflection point moments, certain things DK may have gleaned on the grounds that I didn't think of having to watch from afar. But what a weekend. What a way to end the major season. And again, on the men's side, Djokovic, Alcaraz, a legitimate rivalry moving forward. Certainly we got them in Cincinnati, but we now know for Daniil Medvedev beating Djokovic in February on hard courts, winning the Miami Open title, making, I think it was the finals of Indian Wells as well, where I know Alcaraz spanked him, but now he beats Alcaraz here at the U.S. Open. Sinner wins Canada. He's on the precipice of all sorts of breakthroughs, it feels like, as well. Of course, you have an Alex Zverev who ran out of gas against Alcaraz, but he's starting to regain his form, and you just have to figure guys like Rude and Tsitsipas and... You know, again, I, I put Rublev in this conversation right now because he'll just never crack that top, top tier for me, but is always right on the fringes of it. All the other Americans, Francis, Tommy, Taylor, been on hard courts now that he's gone quarterfinals, semifinals at these last two hard court majors. Seppi Korda, who made the quarterfinals, by the way, in Australia. We got a really good group right now of emerging talent, and everyone's starting to play their best. Everyone's starting to figure out the pecking order. I didn't mention Holger Runa. I apologize. He's obviously going to be healthy, and he'll be back in this conversation as well. 
we're starting to get some clarity for what the future looks like in both the men's and women's game. And I think that clarity is an excellent thing for tennis fans moving forward. So that is what I am looking forward to most moving forward. And again, we got a lot of other things still to clean up coming out of this 2023 U.S. Open. We will do so on part two of our recap tomorrow with our dear friend David Kane. Of course, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff on the ones and twos for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. Shout out to him. A shout out as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all the latest and greatest products in the tennis world with all of that said for our fantastic super producer daniel westoff our friends at tennis point and from all of us here at both crack rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin you know what we say that's the break we'll talk to you all tomorrow thanks everyone